Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 264, Wednesday, March 8th, 2023, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8b through 12, which I'm going to read again. It never loses its power. Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them. So if it's unlike that, this new covenant community will abide by it, and the Lord will never disregard them. <clears throat> For this is the covenant, verse 10, <clears throat> that I will covenant with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will inscribe them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a declaration I hope to deal with in earnest and in detail down the road. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without the forgetting of sins by God. Nor is there ever a forgetting of sins without their forgiveness. To forgive is to forget in the sense that we don't let those sins affect us or color our view of those who have sinned against us and whom we have forgiven. That is sometimes a very difficult task, in fact, maybe impossible, but that's what God does for us and in us. In fact, sometimes it is, as I said, impossible with us. But what's impossible with us is entirely possible to God. If a God of omniscience can forget sins, then we of limited knowledge can certainly do so. To God in us does so. What is impossible to us is entirely possible to God, to God in us, to God with us, to God for us, to God who will never leave us or abandon us. Now I'm going to look at another passage with you if you want to turn there. It's Exodus chapter 24 and I'm going to be speaking from the Greek text or translating from the Septuagint text. We have a representation of 70 men of Israel's elders portrayed here, and I'm taking this from a translation presented by 70 men, 70 scholars, and that's why it's called the Septuagint. Exodus chapter 24, and I'm going to title this part of the message, A Sacrifice of Salvation. The general title today, The Forgiveness of Sins. A subtitle, A Sacrifice of salvation, a very important phrase that you do not see in any translation of the Old Testament except for the Septuagint translation. 
Exodus 24, 5, and that incidentally is the translation that is used exclusively by the Hebrews author. Exodus 24, 5, the translation reads like this, they. Now that means from the context Aaron, the archpriest, and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and 70 of Israel's elders. Incidentally, later on, Nadab and Abihu both die in the holy place because they offer strange fire on the altar. It's a pretty serious business, this priesthood. They, that's Aaron, Moses' brother, and the great archpriest, and he was called great, by the way, archpriest over Israel, and Nadab and Abihu, his sons, and 70 of Israel's elders, slaughtered a sacrifice of salvation. That is not found in the Hebrew text. It is not found in the Masoretic. It's not found in most English translations. It is in the Septuagint translation, so I would find it entirely reliable. The Greek phrase is ethusen thusian. Just like God says, I will covenant a covenant, here it says they sacrificed a sacrifice, but it's ethusen thusian soterio tutheu, which is they slaughtered a sacrifice of salvation to God. Bull calves, it says, bull calves, young calves. In verse 6, now taking half of the blood from that sacrifice, Moses poured it out. The verb here is enkeo or egkeo, E-G-C-H-E-O. And it's the same verb used by Jesus in Matthew 26, 28, in which he said, this is my blood of the covenant some manuscripts say new covenant luke 22 20 says new covenant this is my blood of the new covenant which is being poured out for you the blood of jesus being poured out for us is the blood that was being poured out even as he was speaking in other words symbolically ever since the moment of his incarnation he was being poured out for us. And that climaxed, of course, on the cross with the literal witness of the blood and water pouring forth from his side. And so that's why it's in a present tense. Taking half of the blood, Moses poured it out into bowls, and half of the blood he poured towards the altar. Then, taking the book of the covenant, he read in the ears of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and heed. You think they really did that? You think they kept that? No, they didn't. They didn't abide by my covenant, God said. In verse 8, Moses then, taking the blood, scattered it over the people and said, Look, the blood of the covenant that the Lord covenanted with you concerning all these words. So the covenant, the old covenant, was not instituted or enacted without blood. In that case, and in that sense, it is like the new covenant, even though there are many elements in which it is not like the new covenant because the blood that was enacting the old covenant was the blood of 
bulls and calves and lambs and rams. But the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ is everything. He is the propitiation. He is the altar of sacrifice. He is the mercy seat. He is the tent in the heavens. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And his blood is the blood of the covenant. Verse 9 of Exodus 24. Incidentally, Exodus 24 is alluded to and partly quoted in Hebrews. And Moses went up and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the council of the elders of Israel. And they saw the place there where the God of Israel stood. And that which was at his feet was like a pavement of bricks of lapis lazuli and the appearance of the firmament of heaven in purity. And notice what this says, and this is from the New English translation of the Septuagint, the N-E-T-S. It says, and not even one of the chosen of Israel perished. Please notice that, not even one of the chosen of Israel perished. The chosen of Israel are the 70 men who represented all of Israel, and not one perished, even though they saw the Lord. No one sees my face and lives, God told Moses, but here 70 see his face, see the place where he stood, see the Lord, and not perish. They don't perish. Not one of them perished, or as one translation says, or went missing. We could say disappeared or vanished as a result of seeing the God of Israel. So that's a remarkable thing in itself. But the reason that they saw God is because of the blood. And the reason that he did not die was because of the blood. And then it says, and they appeared in the place of God. And they were eating and drinking. Another remarkable thing, eating and drinking in the presence of God. Not even one perished. That not one of the chosen of Israel went missing or perished is a signifier that all Israel will be saved and that not one of their number will perish. God is not willing that anyone perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. Ultimately, all of humanity will appear before the presence of God without perishing because the poured out blood of the new covenant, the blood of its divine and human mediator, Jesus. It is noteworthy that the Septuagint calls the sacrifice of these young bulls a sacrifice of salvation. It's also notable that not one of the chosen of Israel, which is a representation of all of Israel, went missing or perished, even though they saw God and even gazed upon him all while they ate and drank in his place, meaning in his presence or in the place where he stood. The Hebrews author seems very much to relate to the idea of a sacrifice of salvation. In fact, that is what Hebrews is all about because the author relates to the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ, which he relates in turn to eternal salvation in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, and the blood of his sacrifice, 
which he relates to eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. This pastoral author also speaks early on about such a great salvation, as Hebrews 2.3 calls it, and later on about the salvation that Christ brings with him in his second appearance in Hebrews 9.28. Having borne the sins of many in his first appearance, he brings salvation in his second appearance as great archpriest. That he bore the sins of many, in Hebrews 9.28, is interpreted elsewhere as bearing the sins of all people or over the course of all time. He gave his life as a ransom for all, says 1 Timothy 2.6, which interprets, of course, Jesus' words, and we've done this many times, but it always bears repetition, and you can't repeat it enough, that 1 Timothy 2.6 interprets Jesus' words that, quote, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew twenty twenty eight. It's also found in Mark ten forty five. And his words as he instituted the Eucharist, saying of the cup, this cup is the new covenant ratified by my blood, which is being poured out, please notice that, being poured out for you. The present passive participle of the verb ekkeo is the same verb used here as we've seen in Exodus 24, 6, for the blood of the choice young calves in the sacrifice of salvation. And we can see this also in Luke 22, 20, or as Matthew and Mark have it, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. Some manuscripts in Matthew and Mark read the new covenant, but Luke 22.20 has New Covenant explicitly. It is being poured out in behalf of many, says Jesus in Matthew 26.28. Now again, many equals all. Many equals all. This is the point I've emphatically and repeatedly made. This word many is a humble understatement by Jesus for all. I hope I don't need to go over again the interchangeability of many with all in Romans 5, 18 and 19. Many, paloi, P-O-L-L-O-I, in Romans 5, 15, used three times, in Romans 5, 16, in Romans 5, 17, in Romans 5, 19, used twice, and compared with Romans 8.29, where Jesus is called the firstborn among many siblings, many, many, many. Paloi in Romans 5.19 is used interchangeably with all, pantas. Paloi and pantas mean the same thing. So paloi, many, in Romans 5.19, Jesus' obedience resulted in the making of many righteous is literally interchangeable with all pantas in Romans 5.18, where it says that by his one act of righteousness, dikaioma, he justified all. So all and many are interchangeable in Romans 5.18-19, to 19, 
speaking of the absolute universality of condemnation in the first man, Adam, matched by the absolute universality of justification in the second Adam, or the final Adam, the second man, Jesus Christ. And as we've seen many times before, the many for whom Jesus gave his life as a ransom in Matthew 20, 28, Mark 10, 45, is interpreted as all in 1 Timothy 2, 6, and you can confer also with 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, 1 Timothy 4, 9, and 10, Titus 2, 11, and Titus 3, 4, and 5, in connection with Romans eleven thirty two. If you wanted to actually frame and craft a doctrine of universal salvation. Now, given our new insight that this covenant authorizing blood is the blood of a sacrifice of salvation per the connection with Leviticus or with Exodus rather, Septuagint Exodus 24, 5 and 6, we have to at least consider that what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 26, 28 is this is my blood which is being poured out in behalf of many can be interpreted as for the salvation of many and because many equals all it means for the salvation of all of humanity for the forgiveness of sins notice that phrase it curiously pops up right there for the forgiveness of sins salvation and the forgiveness of sins are in one sense one they are in one sense a unified reality Matthew 26:28 therefore i would translate like this for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins paul received this tradition from the gospels and quoted jesus like this in 1 corinthians 11:25b this cup represents the new covenant in or by my blood this cup represents the new covenant in or by my blood so the forgiveness of sins our general subject today is an expression that denotes salvation though it is not all of salvation the forgiveness of sins is not all of salvation but there is no salvation except that which is by Jesus Christ. And the salvation which is by Jesus Christ is never without the forgiveness of sins. It's not all of what salvation means, but you can't consider salvation without the forgiveness of sins or correctly consider the forgiveness of sins apart from the sacrifice of salvation, which is the self-sacrifice of Jesus the blood of Jesus. This unbreakable linkage between salvation and the forgiveness of sins is found in a unique way in the prophecy of Zechariah, not the Zechariah of the Old Testament, but Zechariah or Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, John the immerser. He prophesies over his son and says this in Luke 1, 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. 
for you will go before the Lord to prepare a highway. There's the king's highway from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Malachi 3.1 also talks about this messenger. To give the knowledge, that's gnosis, and then of the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge of salvation. To give the knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. So let me read that again, because this again notes the linkage, the unbreakable linkage between the forgiveness of sins and salvation, and notably between salvation and the sacrifice of salvation, which we know as the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Christ, which we're going to see in a moment is probably, in my view at least so far, the premier declaration of all of Hebrews, in fact, of all the word of God, is found in Hebrews 9.26b. And we're going to look at that in a moment because we have to create a solution to a problematic text. But now, Hebrews 9.26, he has been manifested once at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin, athetasis, Athetasis here is kind of like aphasis, which means forgiveness, but it's athetasis. It means the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so that's just kind of giving you a heads up. But the forgiveness of sins is the promised reality in the last clause of the New Covenant passage from Jeremiah quoted in its totality in Hebrews 8, 8b through 12. The forgiveness of sins is what the author capitalizes on all the way through this central section of his homily, closing with a requote of Jeremiah 31, 34. In Hebrews, where it's found in Hebrews 8, 12, he closes off this expositional section in 10:17 by requoting the same thing, that he will remember our sins no more. The forgiveness of sins is the cancellation of guilt and of penalty for sins. That the forgiveness of sins is for all humanity and all people without exception, ultimately, is also indicated by the fact that in Scripture it says that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, quoting directly from 1 John 2, 1 and 2, is the expiation or propitiation, there's a little difference between expiation and propitiation, of the sins of the whole world. He is the mercy seat, in other words, of the sins of the whole world, for the sins of the whole world. First John 2, 1 and 2, which is a passage that chimes with John 1, 29, speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On top of this, and this is a passage, again, that I want to, we're reaching forward at this in an anticipation. There is Hebrews 9, 25 and 26, where it says, and this is my translation with a few bracketed comments, neither did he have to offer himself many times. As the archpriest enters the earthly man-made sanctuary or tent yearly with the blood of others. That's sacrificial animals like the young calves. For then, verse 26, for then he would have had to suffer 
many times from the foundation of the world. Now this is very telling and I can only really hint at some of these things because this is an earth moving, earth shaking insight here and declaration. He would have had to suffer many times from the foundation of the world. Now you can interpret this many ways but the way that I'm beginning to see this is instead of suffering many times from the foundation of the world or the creation of the universe, he suffered once at the foundation of the universe, once with the creation of the universe. In other words, the cosmogenetic act or the act that brought the universe into being or that brings it into its new creational being is the act of the slaughtered lamb. It's the passion of the slaughtered lamb. Once and for all, not many times. For then he would have had to suffer. If he was like the Old Testament Levitical order, he would have had to have suffered many times from the foundation of the world. That means the creation of the cosmos or the universe. Now that would be absurd because the point of the creation of the universe the cosmogenetic act is a single event. It was brought about by a single act of suffering on the part of Christ called Hearche in Genesis 1.1, Septuagint, as well as Colossians 1.18. Many acts of suffering do not happen and cannot happen in a single point of eternity and time. Now, all of this is probably going over your head it's gone over my head. I'm not claiming to know something you don't know or know something that you can't know. I'm trying to introduce something that defies articulation, but is in the, the scripture. It's an insight that defies articulation. And so my prayer is that I will be able to articulate this insight. But now, notice this, and this again, I believe to be, the premier declaration, not only of Hebrews, but of the entire scriptures. And it chimes and rhymes splendidly with the word tetelestai. But now he has manifested, he has been manifested, let's say that, as if it rhymes with First Peter 1.20, once at the termini, notice I say termini, of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. The removal of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the reason for the forgiveness of sins and for the reason for God never, ever remembering sins again. Now, there's a problem with this in the English translations, and it's one that I've grappled with for years, and I'm not exaggerating. Once at the end of the ages, or once at the end of the ages, as most English translations say. Now, if you are talking with the end of the ages, you're talking about something unusual here because there's other places in the scripture like Matthew 13, 39, and 40 where it talks about the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, and other places. The end of the age, singular. But here we have the end of the ages, plural. 
So how do we have the end of the ages? Is it the end of all ages? And if it is, then time must have ended then when he offered himself, but it didn't. History went on. And so what we have to consider here is something called Latin terminology. Now, there, is, there are two terms, and this I finally saw this when I looked up what the meaning of these were. Terminus aquem is a Latin phrase. Terminus aquem. That's an end or a terminus of something. It's an end point, an end point. If you have two termini or two terminals, which isn't the right way to say it, but if you have a terminal here and a terminal here, you have two terminals. You have two termini of a certain line of, of something. And for example, if I have a, a pin and another pin or a nail and another nail, in between it there's a wire, there's a wire that connects the two, then the wire has a terminus that in its beginning and a terminus at its end. The terminus aquem is the end of something, the final point of something. The terminus aquo is the beginning. Now, the reason I have the end first and the beginning last is, well, for many reasons. In the scripture, the end becomes a beginning, the beginning an end. And so in Genesis 1.1, you have the same thing as you have in Revelation 21.5 and 6. You have the beginning or the creation of everything and the new creation. God is talking in Genesis 1.1 about a beginning that is also the end point of his creative plan and his redemptive plan. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified in 1 Corinthians 2.2 applies to Genesis 1.1. Why? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Christ Jesus and him crucified, God made the new heavens and the new earth. The beginning is the end, the end is the beginning. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about this, and I'm only sounding the note in this symphony once today in this Wednesday service, and it will be sounded again and again until it reaches a crescendo and maybe reveals an insight that can finally be articulated. Notice it again. Hebrews 9.26, for then he would have had to suffer many times from the foundation of the world. But as it is now, but now he has been manifested once at the termini of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, again, the English translation, the end of the ages is problematic. To propose a solution to that problem, we would consider and define these two Latin phrases, terminus ad quem, which is a goal or finishing point, a final limiting point in time, as the American Heritage College Dictionary 5th edition would say, and a terminus a quo, which is a first point in time, a starting point or origin. Both are ends. Both are ends or both are an end. Both are ends or termini, the plural of terminus. Termini, both are. A, ter a starting point is a termini, a terminus. An end point is a terminus. So at the end of the ages, 
there can be a terminus a quo, the beginning of an age, and the terminus a quem of another age. In other words, when Jesus Christ appeared to sacrifice himself to put away sin, it was at the terminus a quem, the end of the old covenant age, and at the terminus a quo, the beginning of the new covenant age, which is an endless age. So that's why I've said before, because I saw this in part, and I saw this obscurely, and I'm seeing it a little more clearly, the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of him, his self-sacrifice to put away sin once and for all and forever, happened at the juncture of the ages, or at the end of an age marked by the old covenant and by human failure, and the beginning of a new covenant age, an age marked by a new covenant and by the success of God in people and in humanity, the success of God in Christ. The English translation, the end of the ages then, is really a problem. It, it's, you can't really get the point. But we've resolved that by bringing in terminus a quem and terminus a quo. And so, once again, the word in the Greek is suntelea, which is not just telos. Telos would be an end. It would be a singular thing. But we have here suntelea, S-U-N-T-E-L-E-I-A, the tell word is found or the tell root word is found in there which is the same root word found in tetelestai or telos or teleos or a lot of other of the what we call the tell words. Suntelea means here a together. It means both the terminus aquem of the age marked by the old covenant and the terminus aquo because the word soon here means together. So it means together to telos, together to ends. At the cross, there was together to termini, the terminus a quem of the old covenant era and the terminus a quo of the new covenant eternal endless era because the new covenant is an everlasting covenant. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant because it has been made in the blood of Jesus Christ and not animal blood. So consequently, suntelea is the terminus aquem of the age marked by the old covenant and the terminus aquo of the age of the new covenant and of the new covenant community indicated by the Lord Jesus and the two thieves crucified together. If you looked at the hill called Calvary, you'd see Jesus crucified in the center. You'd see a thief on the left and a thief on the right, and they were in, they were crucified together. This is the beginning not only of the new covenant era, but the new covenant community. Two thieves and Jesus. That's the church. How do you like that? The ultimate New Covenant community, crucified together. The sacrifice of himself is the correlative or the correlation of the sacrifice of salvation offered by Moses 
in Exodus 24. For Jesus himself is salvation, the salvation effected by Yahweh. Jesus, Yehoshua in the Hebrew, or Yeshua, is Yahweh who saves. Salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua is salvation. Jesus is our salvation, even as God made him to be our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, and wisdom. Jesus is the salvation of the world, the Son of God, and the Lamb of God, who suffered once for the foundation of the new creation of all things. Now, again, all I've done today is drop a hint drop a little bit of a hint, and maybe even lay a track for a coming train, a coming locomotive that's going to totally, I think, revolutionize our understanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ and his self-sacrifice when it occurred, and it occurred in the nunc stans, which is another Latin word which means the permanent now, the permanent now the intersection of time and eternity, the permanent now. Now, we'll move into a second phase of this, or really a new phase. Imitators of the forgiving God. That'll be a topic with which we'll close off this message. Imitators of the forgiving God. Who are the new covenant community? They are imitators of the forgiving God. God forgave us on account of Christ, according to Ephesians 4.32. With the eternal redemption that is by his blood, Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14, compared with Hebrews 9.12 and Romans 3.24 and 25, we have the forgiveness of sins. Again, with the eternal redemption that is by his blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. His blood is precisely the blood of the new covenant which was poured out for many, Matthew 26, 28, at Calvary, and sprinkled on the mercy seat of the tabernacle, metaphorically speaking, in heaven, in 1 Peter 1, 2, and Hebrews 12, 24. That God in Christ forgave us, as Ephesians 4, 32 says it, even as God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. These two things are together. God forgave us in Christ, Ephesians 4.32. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. God in Christ reconciled. God in Christ forgave. And so... We have both of these concepts, reconciliation and redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In fact, Ephesians 1.7 has forgiveness of sins piggyback, literally, piggyback grammatically, literally, on the word redemption. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so redemption is not without the forgiveness of sins, and the forgiveness of sins is not without redemption. Redemption is inconceivable without the forgiveness of sins because in one sense, redemption is the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is redemption. 
So that God in Christ forgave us in Ephesians 4 to 32, even as God in Christ reconciled the world to himself in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, means that both happened at the moment of the once and for all sacrifice of the Son, which in turn achieved the purification of sins in Hebrews 1, 3, and the putting away of sin or the sin of the world in John 1.29 in connection with Hebrews 9.26. Now, as a couple of fine points, reconciliation as a theme differs from redemption in that reconciliation is coupled with the non-imputation of sins in 2 Corinthians 5.19, whereas redemption is the forgiveness of sins in Ephesians 1.7. Expiation is a word that's also used theological in theological circles. Expiation is the removal of sin and sins. Propitiation, a word that people are very afraid of today because they're afraid they might be talking about something about penalty. But propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin which is an element of his radical love for sinners. People don't want to think that God gets mad at people or mad at human beings or has wrath against human beings, and he doesn't have wrath against human beings. He has wrath against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. He has wrath against sin. So expiation is the removal of sin and sins. But propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And God's wrath is actually an element of his radical love for sinners. Now, I think it was Augustine that made this statement famous and it becomes mindlessly uttered by Christians and sometimes mindfully uttered that God hates sin but loves the sinner. And that's true. But it's also true that God's wrath is not against the sinner, but against sin. And so propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, which is an element of his radical love for sinners. I'll say that again. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath, which is an element of his radical love for sinners. So his wrath is against sin. And when he vented his wrath against sin, he vented his wrath against his son who had become sin. I know that's difficult for people, and it's difficult especially for people who are influenced by a soft view of the atonement. Now, we are urged to forgive others who wrong us in imitation of God who is love. Forgiveness is the confirmation of love, its prime function and manifestation. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is the confirmation of love and its prime function and manifestation. Find that in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12. The forgiveness that cancels sin also cancels bitterness, animosity, and all the toxic results of unforgiveness. As such, it cancels satanic advantage between family members, between spouses, between fathers and sons, parents and children, and between members of the New Covenant community. In our everyday transactions and under everyday pressures, 
which sometimes escalate and become used by our invisible adversary, loved ones say things to each other that they do not in their true heart and their true, real, new humanity mean. It doesn't mean that we can say them, but we say things to each other in the old nature that we don't mean in the new nature. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that we should never say these things or, or that we should ever be allowed to say these things. We should never be allowed to say those things. We are responsible to put off the old man who says those things. So if we say those things, we are responsible for having said them because we were irresponsibly having on the old man who said them. And so our responsibility is to put off, for example, stop lying and put off the old man who is the liar. Put off the lie, you put off the old man that lies. And so people say, well, it wasn't me, it was the old man. Yes, it was you who didn't put off the old man. So we're still responsible for actions like that. And that's why we require forgiveness. And forgiveness cancels not only sin, but advantage of satanic advantage. And satanic advantage is being taken almost everywhere today. So again, in our everyday transactions and under everyday pressures, which sometimes escalate and become used by our invisible adversary, loved ones say things to each other that they do not in their true, real, new humanity mean to say and later repent for saying. It's better, however, to prevent ever saying those kinds of things because it becomes very difficult in our humanity to forget things said in anger to each other. Very difficult. God can do it, but you keep accumulating these kinds of things and keep saying these things, and eventually it's destruction. Now, people say, well, it was the, it was the drugs I was taking. It was the, uh, I was drunk. I was stoned and drunk. I was on opioids, and so I shot that person. I was, I, I couldn't help it. I was on speed back then. Well, you still did it, you see. And sometimes people have to choose between the bottle and their spouse. Sometimes you have to choose between the bottle and your son. Sometimes you have to choose between your wife and family and your addiction. Because if your addiction is something in which you freely say and do things that are violent and abusive, you're still responsible because you have kept on the old man. We have to choose sometimes between keeping on the old man and we have to choose between the old man and our family sometimes because some people will lose their family because they choose booze over their family. Some people will lose their families and their marriages because they choose drugs over their family. They choose addiction to pornography over marital love. They choose these things, and therefore they're choosing a big-time loss. And they, you're, if someone is abusive while under 
the influence of alcohol, and they're not abusive when they're not under the influence of alcohol, then they will someday have to choose to the alcohol over their family. It's either the family or the alcohol. It's either the bottle or your son. It's either the bottle or your daughter or your family. What are you going to choose? And to choose the bottle or the drug or the addiction or the pornography or whatever it is that people get addicted to today over the family is really to choose the old man over the new man and to choose self over Christ and to choose self-absorption, self-deception and self-justification over grace. So that's preaching, and I don't need forgiveness for it, I don't think. In our everyday transactions, these things happen. People speak out of frustration or anger. They may repent and come to us with sorrow for what they said. Our freedom in Christ is to forgive them. But what if they do it seven times, Peter said? Do we forgive them seven times? But Jesus said to Peter, 70 times seven. That's what it's like to be an imitator of God, of the God of love and peace, of the God who is love. It's not a numerical matter. It's a matter of steadfast love and God's mercy, which endures forever. When people fail us, and they do and they will, and if you think there are people who will not and cannot fail you, get ready for some serious disappointments in life. When people fail us, and sometimes miserably, when people we admire fail us, and they do, sometimes shockingly, and sometimes it's required that people that you admire fail because the people you admire, you adulate, you venerate, you adore in the sense of bordering on, if not entering into the realm of worship. And if you worship someone who's not worthy of worship, they will disappoint you in a way that will be iconoclastic. God will cause the fall of your idol. You will see that your idol has clay feet. And because you have worshipped them rather than God, when they fall or fail, you will be all the more angry at them because you think they were above failing you. So watch out. Don't ever put so much confidence in someone that you think they cannot fail you. When people fail us, sometimes miserably they fail us, when people we admire fail us, sometimes shockingly even, this is our opportunity to go vertical, to look past them as Isaiah looked past King Isaiah and saw the Lord high and lifted up and exalted. That's what this is all about. The main point of Hebrews is that we have Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, high and lifted up. Look past everybody else and look to him. Look away from everyone else and everything else and look unto him. Look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. When Noah was drunk and did shocking things and no doubt spoke ugly things and then passed out naked in his tent, Noah's sons, Shem and Japheth, walked backwards with a robe and covered their father. This is the picture 
of forgiveness and of love, for love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Peter 4.8. As a result of their action, Shem and Japheth, in Genesis 9.23 and 24, Genesis 9.26 and 27, Shem and Japheth were greatly blessed in their lives. When Noah awakened from his wine and his drunken stupor, he recognized what they did. And Noah said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May God make Japheth great, and let his living place be in the tents of Shem. Now Shem was the line to Abraham. And in Abraham, the line to Christ. And in Christ, all the nations, that is, all of humanity, was blessed. So there's quite a connection between the covering of Noah and the blessing of all the nations. And so, when we forgive, we prosper in ways that are spiritual and not just other ways. This is not our motivation to forgive. Well, if I forgive him, I'll prosper. No. But it is a guarantee. It sure is no small perk that when we forgive, we prosper. When we forgive, we are imitators of God who forgave us on account of his son and his beloved son's blood. And when we forgive, we are imitators of our father who is gracious to the ungrateful and the wicked. Luke 6.35 Don't get past that. Think of that. Your Father in heaven is gracious to the ungrateful and to the wicked. That's why I'm saved today. I don't know about you. That's Luke 6.35. And he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The two prominent commands, and I mentioned this Sunday as well, to be like God are with regard to love and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the confirmation of love the proof, as it were, that the love of God is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us to be in us forever. And that's all for this increment. Amen.